Are you registered to fundraise in all the necessary states? Join us as ECFA friend and attorney Carl Emerson helps shine light on all the charitable cessation registration requirements. Pursuing God-honoring responsible stewardship in governance, financial accountability, and fundraising. Welcome to the Excellence in Ministry podcast from ECFA. Greetings, and thank you for joining another episode of Excellence in Ministry, a podcast by ECFA. Carl Emerson, a dear friend of ECFA, is with me today to discuss charitable solicitation registration. Carl is an attorney and provides legal counsel and advice to nonprofit organizations, including advising them in the areas of compliance with state charitable solicitation statutes, conducting charitable organization compliance assessments, and conducting internal investigations for charitable and other exempt organizations. In addition to Carl representing a number of these charitable organizations, he's also previously served as the director of the Pennsylvania Bureau of Charitable Organizations, where he was responsible for the administration and enforcing of Pennsylvania's charitable solicitation laws. In addition to his incredible work in this bureau um, and really pioneering a number of things, he's helped streamline and eliminate a number of cumbersome registration procedures and was really the first to implement an electronic registration system. Um, Carl's also served as the president and vice president of the National Association of State Charity Officials, which is a national group of all the different state charity uh, officials that come together. Um, and he served on that board for four years, in addition to serving as one of six individuals selected to represent the nonprofit sector on the IRS first tax exempt advisory committee. All this to say that Carl is extremely qualified to help give us an overview and update on the world of charitable solicitation registration. So with that, Carl, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. It's such a pleasure to be connected with you this morning. Well, thanks for inviting me to speak. So for those, um, you know, just want to launch in here, for those that haven't been as exposed to the charitable solicitation registration in the past, um, Carl, can you share just a really high-level, 30,000-foot view of what is this charitable solicitation registration process, and why is it different in each state? Well, uh, basically, there are 39 states in the District of Columbia that have laws on the books that generally require organizations that want to solicit charitable contributions for a charitable purpose to first register with the states unless they're specifically exempted or excluded under the statute. Um, now, these statutes vary widely from state to state. Uh, they were all enacted at different times, and, uh, but they essentially require an organization that wants to ask for charitable contributions for a charitable purpose from the public to generally have to first register prior to soliciting. Uh, it's the act of soliciting that triggers the registration requirement. The fact that no one in a particular state actually responded to your solicitations and gave you any money is technically not a defense. Organizations can be fined and or prosecuted if they solicit without being registered, even if someone doesn't, doesn't give them any money. Um, basically, 
for the, the, again, the laws vary from state to state, but typically what you're required to do every year is to submit a registration statement, either a paper copy, or increasingly more and more states are switching to online filing systems, either optional ones or mandatory ones. So you have to submit a registration statement to each of these states. You typically have to include a registration fee. In many cases, there is no registration fee. In some cases, it's very minimal, uh, but in some, some of the states, it, it can be pretty significant and it varies with your level of contributions um, or your level of income. The other things that you normally submit to the state at least the first year are copies of your articles of incorporation and your bylaws and your IRS determination letter. And then every year, uh, for practically all of the states, what you have to submit is a copy of your IRS 990 return, as well as your reviewed or your audited financial statements. Um, for, for most of our 100 plus clients, it's usually about a foot or a foot and a half of paper that we submit to all the different states every year. Wow, that uh, that sounds uh, quite extensive in terms of uh, you know when you start talking about a foot or a foot and a half of uh, paperwork, um, you know maybe kind of as we're talking through these fundamentals and just to be clear, what what exactly is uh, a solicitation? What does a, a state consider to be a solicitation? Is that something that is specifically mailed to somebody in that state asking for funds? Um, uh, would a prayer, um, you know, update that a missionary might send potentially constitute a solicitation? Or what about online? If you just have uh, a giving page on your website, um, can you help uh, help listeners understand what what really is a solicitation in that context? Okay, um, under all of these statutes, again, they kind of vary widely, but they generally define a charitable solicitation as any request. For a charitable contribution through any medium whatsoever so if you send someone a letter asking them to consider making a contribution to your organization for a quote charitable purpose or you pick up the phone and you call them um, or you take out an ad in a, a magazine or a newspaper or you have a, an ad on a radio or a television station or um, or nowadays the most common way to that or the increasingly most common way is uh, just sending someone emails. Uh, these statutes were all um, put on the books and enacted long before, as I say, Al Gore invented the internet, okay? But the way they are drafted, they clearly uh, cover uh, internet solicitation. So if you're sending someone an email, asking them for a contribution, it really is no different than picking up the phone or asking them in person or sending them a letter. Um, so that's what triggers the registration requirement. There's a, there's a lot of um, misconception or misinformation out there. A lot of organizations think that they get to raise up to a certain amount of money um, in a particular state before they have to register, and that is generally not the case. Uh, so say you're not exempt or excluded, uh, and you technically, before you pick up the phone or send a letter or send an email to somebody in Pennsylvania, you're supposed to be registered prior to doing that. And if you're not, um, under Pennsylvania statute, um, they're, they're allowed to fine organizations up to $1,000 per violation. So in theory, um, they could fine you up to $1,000 for every email, every letter, every phone call you made, every grant request uh, that you put into a foundation here in Pennsylvania. 
you did that, even if even if no one gave you any money. Wow. Wow. So um, when you're Carl, when you're talking about a, a foot, foot and a half of uh, paperwork that uh, you're working through um, with your clients, is this generally um, a pretty costly process? Um, and, you know, are there are there things that uh, organizations should be on the lookout? Uh, for example, I know a frequent question that comes up um, is that some of these states have a different um, audit threshold uh, than ECFA, for example. ECFA requires an audit when uh, revenues, uh, total revenues exceed $3 million, but I know there's some states that have a extremely low threshold, some as low as even a, a quarter million dollars in uh, revenue. Um, how do you how do you advise um, states or how do you advise uh, organizations as they're working on multi-state compliance to how how best to handle this? Is this something they try to do in-house? Something that you work with them? Uh, something that you just take care of for them? And then you know what are things that they need to be on the lookout for those those traps for the wary unwary? Well, they, they certainly can do it in-house, and lots and lots of organizations do do it in-house. Um, there are several third-party providers, such as our firm and others across the country, that kind of specialize in doing this uh, for charities. And there are, there are lots of charities that kind of get fed up with doing it in-house because it's not, once you're registered, it's not like you're submitting all the renewal registrations on April 15th. Um, the, the laws vary from state to state and the due dates for you to submit a particular year's renewal registration really vary widely from state to state. Uh, some of the states you have to actually request extensions because their normal due date is gonna be well before you're gonna have your IRS 990 your audited financial statements ready. And so there are lots of organizations that just get very, very frustrated with the process and decide to hire a third party provider like us to do it. Um, the, the thing that is, is kind of ironic, uh, and I say this as a former charity regulator, um, you know, we talk, we've always historically talked about the pile of paper and the size of the pile of paper that has to get filed. And the interesting thing is, is that when I first started doing this, it's kind of ironic, I started doing this July 11th, 11 years ago when I retired from the Commonwealth after 25 years. And the actual pile of paper that we submit to the states has actually gotten smaller in the last 11 years. Um, and you would think that that's a good thing. Um, and I guess in one respect it is because we're killing fewer trees, but the, it's kind of ironic that now with more and more states going to online filing systems, most all of the online filing systems take a lot more time to do. Um, I mean, we actually have a full-time online filing specialist now, but that's all this lady does uh, Monday through Friday, nine to five o'clock. It's just file online registrations that um, for our purposes uh, take a lot more time to do. I mean, it's a, it's a, it takes a lot more time for us to do an online registration than it does to produce the paper registration that we send to our client for them to sign and send back to us there. Um, 
so it is kind of interesting uh, that it, it actually takes a lot more time um, to register nationally now than it did 11 years ago when I started doing this. Wow, wow. So um, is, is there a single place organizations can go to to determine you know, what their charitable solicitation requirements are or potential exemptions in that process? And I'll, I'll just put a plug in here for a, a webinar um, we did with you, Carl, uh, a few years back, and we'll include a copy of the, that link in the show notes um, to this podcast. But um, beyond those types of resources, are there good places or resources that organizations can look to for um, educational resources on this? Yeah, I mean, the best site would be to go to the NASCO website, which is the National Association of State Charity Officials, and that's just www.nasconet, N-A-S-C-O-N-E-T, one word, dot org. And if you click on that, as you go through the pages, um, basically, if you want to know, you're going to send solicitations into Maryland, and you want to know if Maryland is one of the 39 states that has these laws, you click on it. And as long as the links are working and have been updated, which is not always the case, because it's just done by, it's, it's maintained by state employees that are, have, have very limited resources. They have very demanding jobs and they're doing this kind of as a public service. But um, when the links work, you just, you just click on it and you can, it'll take you right to Maryland's website. You can see if they have a requirement, you can download the forms, you can see if they have either optional or mandatory online filing systems. So um, that is probably the best site to go to is just www.nasconet.org. Um, that gives you a good overview of it. The other one is that you could just Google um, unified registration statement. That is uh, what we use as much as we possibly can. Um, actually, it's been a couple decades. Um, NASCO came up with what they call a unified registration statement that most of the states, and it still is most of the states, uh, will accept in lieu of their own, their own registration statements. And that always has a very detailed um, set of instructions about the requirements for each of the states. So um, those are the two. Just Google the unified registration statement go to the nascomnet.org website. Very good. And for those that are probably a little bit more familiar with the charitable solicitation registration process and just compliance in general, Carl, you're very involved with a number of organizations. You've been in-house, um, so to speak, with one of the state charity um, oversight groups, um, bureaus. Um, are there particular areas of enforcement that you're seeing from state charity regulators uh, today? Well, the thing that, that we, we all as citizens and me as a, as a former charity regulator is always encouraged to see is when you see one or more states going after or after genuine charitable solicitation fraud you know um, that's kind of like you know the charitable sector is just like the legal sector just like the medical sector just like any profession there unfortunately is kind of a seedy side to it and as hard as it is to believe there are individuals out there that actually 
create bogus charities um, and they collect money and they try to defraud you know all kinds of folks but particularly senior citizens and those are the types of things that all of us want to see these charitable solicitation statutes those aspects of those laws get enforced um, unfortunately it takes a lot of time and effort you got to have specialized staff to do that investigators and auditors and most of the states don't have the resources to do that. Uh, most of them basically register charities. They put basic information out on increasingly on their websites so that donors can make hopefully make better, more informed charitable giving decisions. That's why they take the basic numbers off your 990 and make them available through 800 numbers or through their website so that you can hopefully make better, more informed decisions. Um, there are, you know, the various states are really, with the technology, they're able to catch a lot more organizations that are soliciting without being registered. I mean, I know when I took over the Charities Bureau in Pennsylvania in 1995, there were about 3,700 registered charities. And then when I left uh, a little over 10 years later, uh, we had well over 10,000. You know, we were just catching lots and lots of organizations that are not registered, uh, we're not registered. So um, that's that's where I think you'll see a lot of the states, you know, they go after unregistered solicitation, those that have investigative and auditing resources, you know, make a good effort to go after the charity fraud that's out there. And then um, the other thing that large numbers of the states are, are very effective in doing is if you renew your registrations late, lots of states have mandatory late fees and penalties that uh, that kick in if you're late in renewing your registration. No, I appreciate that. Very helpful overview. And, um, you know, and, and this has been really helpful in terms of providing context and framework for uh, those that are listening. Um, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, connect with the audience uh, today on this. Um, just in, in closing, are there any words of wisdom that you would encourage organizations to consider as they work on multi-state charitable solicitation registration? Um, you've, you've certainly helped us uh, understand how this is helpful and prevents uh, fraud in the, in the broader uh, sector of nonprofit organizations. Um, but can you help us understand any other words of wisdom uh, that you may have to share? Well, I think the, the main thing that I say in the hundreds of presentations I've given on these over the years, both as the, um, you know, as a, as a charity regulator and now as some uh, attorney in private practice that helps organizations get into compliance, is that I always tell people, both when I was the charity regulator and in private practice, if you if you become aware of what these requirements are even if you didn't know about them um, and, you, and you hear about the potential fines and penalties the, the natural human response for a lot of people is like oh my goodness you know if i go and get registered now i mean we're going to be on the hook for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in penalties and what i always encourage organizations in those situations to do is to not wait for one or more states to catch you. Um, that's the worst case scenario. Um, you know, we, we've been 
very successful in getting organizations that have been violating the law for many, many, many years back into compliance with minimal or no fines and penalties. And the, the key factor is when we can say to a state regulator that either has imposed or is proposing to impose a very significant penalty, that the organization wasn't caught. In other words, that they came forward voluntarily, they, didn't, they, they weren't aware of these requirements, and now they're trying to do the right thing. So I would say that that's probably the most important um, thing to do is, is that if you, if one of your listeners has, has realized that, oh, you know, we, we are not exempt or excluded um, under most of these laws, and so therefore we need to get registered, I would just encourage them not to wait until one or more states catch them because then you're potentially going to be on the hook for more significant fines and penalties. You know, the, the regulators have very limited resources and their goal is not to hammer charities with huge fines and penalties that would arguably put them out of business. They just want to get people into compliance. And so you go forward and you just submit your registrations, even if you've been soliciting for years and years, you know, without being properly registered, you're always going to come out way ahead that way. Uh, that's uh, that's very uh, salient uh, words of wisdom there. And and you mentioned something I'd, I just want to emphasize to organizations, especially ECFA members that might be listening to this, and that is um, to, to review as you're looking at this, whether there are potential exemptions or exclusions uh, for you as a religious organization. Some jurisdictions do have those uh, types of provisions, but that's something you have to carefully review to determine, um, you know, what that, how far that extends and whether that might apply to your organization in the particular facts and circumstances. So, well, Carl, this has been most helpful. Thank you so much for taking time to join us. And we'll have a link to your uh, website uh, in, the, in the show notes here as well. So thank you so much, Carl. Thanks, John. Well, thank you for listening to another Excellence in Ministry podcast from ECFA. For more resources on this topic and others, visit ecfa.org. God bless you.